Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Well, hi, everyone. This is Paul Gillen with the B2B Social Media Podcast number four with my co-author of the Social Marketing to the Business Customer book, Eric Schwartzman on the line from Los Angeles. Hi, Eric. Hi, everybody. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the first book devoted entirely to B2B social media marketing, and we discuss developments in and best practices for marketing to business customers online in the book, and we also do it here with uh, this fourth in our series of B2B social media podcasts. As always, we're interested in hearing your comments, so send your comments, criticism, feedback to comments at, it's a mouthful, b2bsocialmediapodcast.com. Uh, the link is on the site in the show notes. So, uh, Eric, we got a pretty full episode here uh, t- talking about some, uh, some uh, new developments in the area of uh, Google search, the rise of self-publishing, uh, Facebook, and, and also our guest appearance on FIR Live just uh, this past or a week, and, uh, a week and a half ago. Yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed that. So uh, that podcast is up, and we will have the link to that on the show notes as well. We spent an hour with Shell Holtz and Neville Hobson with their uh, legendary podcast, which is uh, one of my favorites, and uh, although certainly not my favorite, Eric, uh, in, on the record online has to uh, is the top of my list. We had a good back-channel conversation. We, we only had one caller, but we had a very uh, active back-channel conversation with uh, quite a few people communicating uh, through the chat uh, room, indicating that um, you know, maybe that's how social media de- denizens prefer to uh, to communicate. Yeah, but it, it was nice to uh, see a lot of familiar, uh, well, I can't say faces, uh, Twitter IDs. And the uh, a lot of people use the same uh, ID for their uh, chat room uh, avatar as they do for their for their Twitter ID. So I know we saw, uh, I think Brian Person was there, and we saw uh, Steve Lubetkin. Yep, Chip Rogers was there. Yep, yep. So I know if we may probably be forgetting a few names, but everyone who did show up, thank you. Yes, thank you. It was great having the uh, having the conversation, seeing old friends again. So uh, in this episode, uh, we also have the uh, meeting with Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, and Eric Schmidt, meeting with President Obama. Uh, Google search getting more social and possibly some crack showing in the Google armor. Um, the rise of self-publishing and the quest for content, uh, keying off of some work in B2B magazine that uh, we thought was interesting. And um, finally, uh, I'm going to talk briefly about B2B Facebook pages. But um, Eric, do you want to kick off with our first news item? Yeah, I want to. I saw an interesting story that uh, uh, ran at um, finchannel.com, which was basically a takeoff on an e-marketer story. Um, and the headline is B2B sites see big rise in LinkedIn logins. So maybe you've noticed uh, lately you go to a website and uh, it gives you the chance to use either your Twitter credentials or your Facebook ID or your Google or your LinkedIn to log into the site. And of course, if you log into the site, you get access to content that you wouldn't get if you didn't log into the site. And there are a number of services out there that are designed now to help you uh, let let people log into your websites with their social networking credentials. Um, one is called Janrain, and I had actually interviewed Torstein in a previous episode of this podcast. It's quite good. I'll have a link in the show notes. And they compete with an outfit called Gigia. 
And both these companies offer these platforms that basically allow you to let people use their social networking credentials uh, when they log in. And at the time of login, you can populate your own database with their profile information. So uh, on the one hand, they're being told that they have to use this information to log in. On the other hand, you're getting to save that information. And um, a lot of these services will actually uh, automatically publish a story to your news feeds um, in Facebook or your, you know, your Twitter feed if you use Twitter to log in or your LinkedIn uh, um, feed if you use LinkedIn to log in. And what they're basically saying in this story here is that Gigia, which is you know obviously one of the companies that provides a platform like this, um, saw an increase in the use of LinkedIn accounts to sign in uh, to B2B sites between July 2010 and January 2011. And uh, the rise was basically you know in, in, in July 20, uh, uh, 2010, they saw 3% of those logins coming from LinkedIn. And um, uh, for January 2011, it went up to 20%. And uh, pretty interesting, you know, that more people are using this to log in. Here's the speculation behind why they see the rise. They say, for one, they think a lot of people are trying to sort of segregate their identities online. They want to have a professional profile and a personal profile. So they think a lot of people, the same users, will use the LinkedIn profile to log into a B2B site why they, while at the same time they'd use a Facebook uh, ID to log into a, a social site or a casual site where they're going to hang with friends and family. But the other thing they said is, you know, there's been quite a lot of uh, improvements to LinkedIn over the last few months. You know, we've saw improvement to groups. We've saw seen better targeting on the advertising side. We've seen they, them get more aggressive uh, with their API, with the integration deal with Hoover that we talked about uh, in a previous episode of the B2B social media podcast. Um, and uh, they, they ended off with a quote. They say, although LinkedIn has always been the professional social graph, they've really made some great moves over the past year, especially to encourage more communication and collaboration among people using the service. Um, and that's, that's a line from the, from the Gigia company blog. Um, but, uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Paul? I mean, why do you think more people are late logging in with LinkedIn? Well, you know, we talked about the trend toward consumerization, I think in the last show and how, uh, technology trends that reach into the corporation increasingly start in the consumer uh, space these days. And I think what we're seeing is the same effect happening here where people have, uh, their, their on-ramp to social networking has really been Google. And once they, excuse me, not Google, it's been Facebook. And once they figure out Facebook, they want to, they become comfortable with using different kinds of social networking tools. And I thought it was notable that LinkedIn is at uh, over 90 million members now, will we'll crest 100 million members uh, within the next uh, couple of months, uh, likely. So you've got really critical mass here developing on LinkedIn in addition to Facebook now. And I think people are getting sophisticated enough about social networks now that they are beginning to look at you know, making distinctions in their lives between the personal, uh, you know, Facebook, which I think of as being the, the after-hours social network, and LinkedIn as being the, the work-time social network. So it's not surprising that, uh, that people are, are becoming bolder in how they use LinkedIn as well. Plus, I agree with you. I think LinkedIn has made some great improvements recently to its API, opening up its groups, uh, making its search more, more um, uh, effective, 
and really uh, they've been quite aggressive in improving the functionality of the LinkedIn site, and I think it's being to pay off for them. Do you uh, have any clients or know of any companies on the B2B side that are using Janrain or using Giga or maybe just have integrated the APIs from LinkedIn or from Facebook to let people log in to their website? Well, I just uh, actually have been working on a project with IBM that is just that uh, decided to do this actually early on, over a year ago, decided to add the LinkedIn uh, the LinkedIn integration, in fact, uh, did not have Facebook at the time and is now looking at going back and adding Facebook. Uh, LinkedIn is a, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I see the LinkedIn login uh, turning up, the, the LinkedIn, um, uh, the, you know, the option to log in with your LinkedIn profile turning up on, on a lot more sites now, especially business-focused sites. And I think it's because uh, sort of Facebook, again, Facebook, Google, really set the stage for that by making it, uh, getting people comfortable and familiar with the idea of using a, uh, a login on another social network to create a membership on, on yet another social network. And I think we are seeing uh, that, that the uh, website operators are driving this now by adopting the LinkedIn API in addition to the others that they were already using. You know, I actually um, sat in on a, uh, a presentation from Gigya over the phone uh, where they basically laid out their offering for a potential client that was sort of kicking their tires and seeing whether or not this might work for them. And uh, I was very impressed. And in terms of the, uh, you know, the sort of the pitch of how they were positioning their product, they said, look, you know, we're, we give you a plug-and-play um, utility that allows you to let people log into your site with whichever social network they want to log into. And keep in mind, you know, the, uh, the APIs are constantly changing. So if you don't use someone like us, if you just want to hard-code integrate it yourself, you're constantly going to have to be monitoring changes to the API so that it works. Whereas if you just go with us, you just pay us a monthly fee – and we make sure that it works for you. Right. And I and, definitely think there's value in that. And it's, it's, not a, a, it's not a trivial task on many platforms to add, to, to integrate a, uh, a, you know, an, an open connect um, or a, a uh, open, open ID or um, uh, some of these third-party uh, third so, uh, social network APIs. It's not trivial. So I think Gig has got a nice, uh, a nice value proposition. And the, the message to site operators is pretty compelling, which is we can build your, uh, your database, your membership database, by using information that people have already entered on their social networks. You don't have to, to populate, reconstruct the database for each member who comes in. And you know, that's getting very hard to do. I, I, the last thing I want to do these days is fill out yet another profile. But let me tell you where I was a little underwhelmed, where, where I feel like, or perhaps there's room for growth um, there. You know, when it comes to actually monitoring, you know, the, the it's one thing to populate a database with somebody's professional profile information or their personal profile information if it's on Facebook. It's another thing to be able to sort of paint a picture of their likes and dis dislikes from a psychographic standpoint. Now, the cool thing about Google, obviously, is the uh, – I'm, I'm sorry, about Facebook, is the like button because every time I like something, I give you a better picture of who I am and what I'm interested in. But there's no way to sort of take that data into Gigio or take that data into Janrain at, that, at this point. So, and, and in terms of you know, visualizations or reports that are available, there's no real way to monitor that yet. It seems to me – that's the real opportunity. You know, how do you get your arms around the data so that you can really see who you're talking to and what they're interested in? 
Yeah, and what, what Giga wants to do, obviously, is to be, uh, they want to build on top of the pyramid. So they want to be the guys at the top of the pyramid who see everything that's going on at the different social networks that they partner with so they can create a, a richer profile of the, of the user, which presumably will be used for, uh, for advertising. But clearly, that's got to go, go beyond uh, profile information. Uh, Somehow yes, you've got to be able to look at the activity. Behavioral exactly. information, right, which is what Facebook and LinkedIn are both doing that uh, within their own uh, domains. We talked about that on the last show, how LinkedIn is beginning to, to target advertising to certain uh, special interests and professional credentials. And that really is the, you know, the holy grail that, that everyone is chasing, including Google. But don't you need to give um, advertisers some sort of a visualization so that they can allocate their spend? Like what's like what I'm thinking is at some point, you know, something replaces the Nielsen numbers for social media, right? Something is going to be, you know, the ratings point upon which decisions of how much to spend are made. We still don't have that because there's still no independent third party that's standardized those metrics. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, is that is that the big opportunity for a Gigia or or a Janrain, you know, to somehow sort of get all this data and present it in in a way that's useful, so that we can make smarter decisions as marketers. But I wonder if Nielsen is even relevant uh, in this world. You know, uh, Nielsen basically was uh, was created to see how many people were sharing the experience of watching a single uh, television show, and on the web, no two people are watching the same show at any given time, right? We're all having a unique experience. Agreed. But right now, money is spent based on Nielsen rating points. So as the money migrates to social media, right, if it's going to continue, uh, advertisers are going to need some sort of numbers upon which to make decisions. So shouldn't there be some sort of equivalent well, I think what advertisers are going to want is for someone to give them profile, give them guidance in choosing profiles so they can spend their ad dollars uh, hitting exactly the right people at exactly the right time. And that's going to be dependent, literally, I mean, you're talking about one-to-one -one advertising. And no one's figured that out yet. But if, if someone could tell me that I want to hit people who are who are members of this group in Facebook and this group on LinkedIn and who are are using this hashtag on Twitter you know, or whatever, if, if someone can give me a mix like that that says this is the optimal group, you, you want LinkedIn members who self-describe themselves as engineers in, you know, in, in aerospace and manufacturing uh, and who belong to these groups. Who have liked NASA and who have liked GigaOM. Right. That's the kind of profiling I think we'll look for in the future. It'll be highly customized to the, uh, to the individual advertiser. But do you think we'll get to a point where you just buy that from Facebook? Or do you think there'll have to be some sort of third party that you trust to give you that data? Well, that will be a, uh, that, that will be a, a titanic battle, I'm sure, because uh, everyone wants to trump everyone else. Everyone wants to be the super, uh, the, the super overseer who knows what members are doing in all these different sites. And, of course, they, uh, uh, no one is going to give that advantage to a third party. So Giga is probably uh, Giga is a friend of Facebook, but it's also Facebook's enemy because it wants to, uh, to gather this data that Facebook uh, has every interest in not giving up. Well, my understanding is that it is available through the API. I mean, I th and I believe it is. I mean, if you look at the integration with, with Amazon, they're able to, uh, you know, read and write updates to the platform from a destination site. So by the same logic, 
couldn't you engineer a destination site or some sort of widget or some service that would essentially aggregate data that could then be packaged and sold to advertisers? Yeah, well, I think all of the services are going to try to do this on their own. You know, and Google is, has been doing that for some time based on, on contextual advertising, and, and Facebook and LinkedIn and the others are going to figure it out for their own, their own, uh, uh, their own context, but they're not going to give up that data to some third-party uh, third party aggregator, or at least not in the, in the near future. You could have maybe uh, agencies that will specialize in, in making these highly targeted media buys and will have will be gathering data from all the different uh, potential destinations like this so that they can optimize the buy. It'd be interesting to know what uh, listeners think. I mean, if you're listening to this conversation, what do you think? Do you think that basically you're going to need some sort of a third party to come in and put their stamp of approval on metrics and data, standardized metrics and data for advertisers really to you know move their spend off of Nielsen onto these platforms? Or do you think, no, it's, going to, it's not going to be dependent on some sort of th- third-party rating. You're just going to specify the buyer persona you want in Facebook and go after them that way. Yeah, Let I us know. Be, wouldn't be surprised to see boutique agencies emerge that sort of specialize in doing that for you. You want to uh, move on to our, uh, our content marketing discussion? I, I think Let's do that. Really, Great idea. We, we, we sort of hit on this independently, a, a couple of different uh, uh, items, news items, studies that we came across. Uh, one that caught my eye was in B2B Magazine this week called The Rise of Self-Publishing and the Quest for Content. And it was an article by the VP, a VP of Media Logic who said, basically, why are B2B companies not taking advantage of the opportunity to become thought leaders? Uh, to use self-publishing as a way to to become uh, experts in their in their field, and uh, I thought that's a hell of a question. You know, I'm I'm still surprised that uh, at this late stage in social media, if you want to call it a late stage, we've, we've been doing this, some of this stuff for six or seven years now. Why more marketers in general aren't uh, taking advantage of the uh, of the opportunity to, to lead their market? I can't imagine of a better uh, a better position to be in in terms of building your brand than being a market leader. And uh, Eric, you came up with some interesting uh, research in in a study that you found. Maybe you can describe that. So um, many of you may have actually seen this already. It's the B2B Content Marketing 2010 Benchmarks, Budgets, and Trends report by Marketing Profs and Junta42. Is it Junta or Junta? I think it's Junta42, but I don't know. Junta42. Yeah, my Spanish is not so good. And this was in association with American Business Media, BMA, and the Content Marketing Institute. And it's a really good report where they basically interviewed content marketers and asked them, you know, what works, what doesn't, which are the best uh, channels, um, which ones give you the best results, what are some of the biggest hangups to effective content marketing. And uh, there were a couple um, charts here that really sort of caught my eye. The first one I know I told you about. I'm just sort of looking for it here. Ah, It's a chart that basically um, rates the effectiveness of content marketing tactics. And uh, uh, the top ones, which were either effective or very effective, were in order of effectiveness – in-person events at 72% of respondents saying that that was effective. That actually ranked the highest, 72%. Uh, 57% for research reports, 56% for webinars, webcasts, um, those two webinars, webcasts in the same group, 55% for e-newsletters, and 53% for case studies. Remember those? 
case Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> My God. People are still doing them, I guess. I mean, I, I was sure when we wrote the book and we did the interview with uh, Mark Yolton about what they're doing, the SAP, that uh, social networking would replace the case study because you just well, get a customer-to-customer -customer testimonial. Well, we said as much in the book. If you remember, we said that uh, customer case studies are, are the most part uh, whitewashed, they're, they're cleansed of, of anything of anything that's interesting uh, for the sake of being as inoffensive as possible. And that uh, the really written or, or, or printed case studies, or however you want to distribute them, are uh, are going to be far less effective than the kind of one-to-one -one case studies that we can now get by reaching out to people who self-describe themselves as, as having an experience. Yeah, but it looks like it by by the by the looks of this study, it looks like it's going to take some time for the market to catch up. Well, let me give you my perspective on this, and I, I thought it was very interesting. Uh, this is a very interesting study. Uh, I think as much for what what marketers don't like is what they do like and when we looked at the um, the, the topics that um, the tactics that people rated most effective versus least effective uh, everything they rated most effective we've been doing for at least 10 years and some for a lot longer than that and of the five tactics rated least effective podcast social media uh, traditional promoting content traditional media digital magazines and ebooks we've arguably been doing those things all for less than five years so I think what we've got is a, is a maturity cycle here. People are confident with, uh, with trade shows, for example, because we've done trade shows for a long time, and we know that they're effective. Now, it's interesting that people were not, here, not asked here to talk about cost effectiveness or about ROI, but overall effectiveness. And when you talk to people who have done virtual trade shows, they will tell you that, uh, at least in my experience, the ROI on virtual trade shows can be tremendous uh, because they're able to get qualified leads at a much lower cost than they would by you know schlepping a half a dozen people out to Las Vegas for a week uh, but what we're seeing is a there are, are buyer and seller behaviors that are taking time to change a lot of buyers prefer to go to trade shows rather than virtual trade shows a lot of buyers may not listen to podcasts um, they are maybe they're using conventional case studies because that's something that they've done for a long time I mean I, I think that it's Sort of the hidden message here is that that behaviors are changing slowly. Yeah. You know, there's another uh, graph in the report here, page 19. Comparison of most effective content marketers to least effective content marketers. And then uh, basically what they say is, um, you know, those who are most effective spend the least amount of time trying to win executive buy-in uh, for social media. Whereas those who are least effective spend the most amount of time uh, trying to get executive buy-in. And I actually wrote a blog post about this that I published last week uh, titled Why Your Company Sucks at Social Media, um, which basically uh, argues that uh, you know, CEOs are probably the biggest obstacle right now to effective social media adoption inside, the in inside of a company because their literacy is so low. I mean – do you think that um, you know the CEO of J.C. Penney or the CEO of Overstock, you know, knew what was going on that caused them to be downgraded by Google? Do you think they uh, really I, understood the significance of an inbound link? I suspect that th that those guys don't even uh, read their own email. You know, they have they have secretaries printed out for them. I think that the least uh, the least savvy people in the organization about digital marketing tend to be the people at the top because it's only a small part of their job 
anyway, and they can't uh, they can't keep in touch with the latest trends of a uh, of a medium that is developing at you know at a very rapid rate. Uh, so, and, and after all, companies are averse to change. As a rule, com organizations do not like to change. So you say uh, we should spend 50% less on golf sponsorships this year and and move that money into social media. Most executives are going to tell you, you know, at the very best to get your head examined uh, because they know how the golf tournament is going to work. They don't know how this other stuff is going to work, and that takes time. Behaviors take time to change. Yeah, I think um, you know unlocking the potential of social media is really going to rely on increasing social media literacy levels enterprise-wide. I think as long as we treat emerging media as a marketing and PR opportunity, we're going to you know, fail to realize the true promise of many-to-many -many communications. And this will happen over time. And I think if you look, Eric, at you know, your point about uh, the, some of the conclusions of this study about the characteristics of effective marketers versus ineffective marketers, and those who are effective have largely bought in. Right, they have organizations that are bought in. They are doing all of the new stuff, and it's working for them. The ones who are ineffective are the ones who are kind of sort of stuck in the mud, doing the things that they were doing ten years ago. I think you, that is very characteristic of a of a trend uh, of a dramatic new trend that is you know, changing the the business in some fundamental ways. That your leading edge, what they call the early adopters. Uh, are the ones who are going to have the first successes, and then the and then it becomes okay for others to jump in. Well, let me ask you something. I mean, how do you think organizations will will figure this out and 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 get ahead of it? Because you know, I was in D.C. last week um, with meetings with some government agencies where uh, you know the marketing department has adopted social media, the public affairs department has adopted social media. They're doing it; things are working out. But what they're really struggling with is adoption enterprise wide and they really don't have opportunities to provide training to people outside of external communications like there's no training program for the operations department of how to use social media there's no training program for human resources there's no training program for the folks at the top you know the executive director and really the struggles i saw on the ground uh, you know, talking to some of these people has to do with how they sort of get others inside the organization to realize the benefits, which well, are I not think, the same benefits as uh, they would be for marketing or PR. I think those of us who live this this new lifestyle tend to get frustrated that the uh, you know that others aren't getting it. I guess at the same speed. I, I don't mean that to sound to sound arrogant, but uh, that others aren't moving along. And But the fact is, this is very characteristic of new technologies. And when you think back, I mean, I still remember the first time I received an email message, right, uh, other than MCI mail, uh, an e email message with an at sign address in it. It was something like 1989. I remember I was, I was down at IBM, and they were demonstrating email. Uh, and I thought this was amazing. I'd never seen email before. Now, this is 22 years ago. It's hard to believe that 22 years ago, uh, and at the time I was at Computer World, right, which should have been pretty on top of things, I had never seen email before. And now look at, imagine you were to take email away from, from anyone in the business world. Uh, you'd take it away over their dead body. I think we see that over, uh, over a decade, we see behaviors shift dramatically. But over three, four, five years, they don't shift much at all. So when you think that 10 years ago, uh, very few people even knew what Google was 10 years ago, and today, you know, it's a verb and it's a way of life. 
uh, I think we will see that, that these barriers will fall over the next four to five years. We'll see these barriers fall rather rapidly, but we're still in the early startup stage. You know, it's it's a fair point, and I was actually listening this morning to Shell Holtz's interview of Laura Fitton on FIR. We'll put a link I've in the show notes. I listened to that myself. It was a great interview. Yeah. Great interview. And, the you know, the, one of the lines has got, would you, could you imagine if someone today said, who owns email in the organization? You know, how people would flip out. Um, uh, but, um, you know, the truth is the velocity, the pace of change, um, that social media brings forth is quite remarkable. Um, if you think about, let, let me just, let me follow this train of thought for a second. If you think about, and you know, I don't, not, not to get political, but to, to talk as a communicator, if you look at the pace with which organizers were able to, uh, essentially oust uh, Ben Ali from Tunisia and 18 days later Mubarak and now obviously the pressures on Gaddafi um, these organizations obviously you know they had if they took four or five years to wake up they're out of business right so if things continue to accelerate you know if, if social media is an accelerator uh, and it accelerates the pace of change do these big sleeping giants have four to five years to wake up? I mean, that's really my big question. Oh, I think it's an excellent question. And I think when you look at how quickly the the top corporations are turning over these days, uh, Mary Meeker at the uh, at conference in San Francisco uh, in November, which the, I've temporarily lost my senses here. Isn't she uh, a crook? John- isn't she some sort of a crook? I remember the name being associated with. No, uh, no, no, not not Mary Meeker. I, uh, some of her colleagues on Wall Street were, but uh, I don't believe Mary Meeker was ever she tarred was clean. with that brush. I don't uh-huh. believe she was ever tar- tarred with that brush. Uh, this is John Battelle's John Battelle's conference. Uh, uh, showed a list of the top online companies in. 2000, I think it was 2004, and then the top online companies in 2010, and two-thirds of the list had turned over. I mean, those companies were gone for the most part. I think the average lifespan of a company on the Fortune 500 list, I I read, is something like 11 years these days. So a company to, uh, no, we don't really have the luxury of time anymore. We will be out-innovated if we do not if we do not uh, uh, correctly latch on to the developing trends. It's interesting that people are talking about Google today almost as if it's over the hill, as if Google is history. It's hard to believe that. Uh, but business velocity is so fast these days that that waiting is not, uh, you know, is not a viable strategy. So I Okay, think so if that's the case, how do you take the bull by the horns and how do you teach everyone enterprise-wide inside the organization, how to use social media, how to use it as a new telephone. Well, I want to get back to something. This is also in your study, but it also bridges between the topic that uh, the, the B2B article I mentioned earlier about uh, content marketing and becoming an expert and the the numbers in the study, very interesting numbers. There's a chart in the study about the biggest content marketing challenge, and 36% say producing engaging content, 21% say producing enough content, 9% say producing a variety of content. So out of 100%, you have two thirds. Sixty-six percent of the respondents say that it has to it has to do with producing content, with with just uh, uh, getting topics that are going to be compelling to people. Now, I disagree with you. I don't think it's getting compelling topics. I the topics are easy, but telling them in a way. 
that gets people's attention is a real art. And, you know, I know Chris Brogan came out with this new business idea where you can subscribe and get suggestions for topics. I don't need suggestions for topics. I need help making the topics interesting, which is something Brogan is a master at, you know. Yeah, but I'll bet if you asked him how he does it, he would have a hard time to. He, he might be able to tell you how he does it, but that doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it like he does. I mean, it's like well, asking. If you were a, it's an like editor. An I mean, how did you do it? Uh, I, mean, I don't know. The editor of a site. I don't so, know. I you know I, I write books. People tell tell me that my books have have good stories in them and that they're they're engaging to read. I'd be darned if I can tell you how I do that in in my style. Uh, it's uh, there's certain things. I mean, ask a you know ask so, a good so painter. So it's stylistic. Everyone well. does it differently. Uh, I saying. think it is, and I think that we're going to find that uh, that uh, this issue of finding content. You know, why are companies not taking advantage of of the thought uh, of becoming thought leaders? I think that a lot of them are timid, uh, believing they won't do it very well, and uh, and so they don't do it at all. And I, frankly, I understand that. I think that that makes that makes sense. If I was not confident in my ability to tell a story effectively, I too would probably not want to tell the story. So there's no one see, way you're saying. There's no one way to do it. I think what we're going to see is more companies are going to have to, to spend some money and hire some people, whether contractors or full-timers, get the professional journalists, the professional uh, writers and editors who know in, instinctively how to do this stuff and bring them into the fold because they don't have the stories, but they have the ability to tell the stories. And thinking of content, you know, when we think of B2B, again, I, I go back to one of my favorite blogs is the Emerson Process Control Experts blog. Uh, which uh, Jim Cahill writes, and, and he tells you, all he does with that blog is he tells stories. He interviews engineers in the hall, and he's the communicator. They're the technology expert. He takes their stories, and he turns them into something engaging, and it, and it works. It's a combination of two different uh, skill sets that work very well together. I think that's what more companies are going to have to do. Don't have the engineers writing the blog entries. Have the engineers talking to people who can write the, the blog entries to be interesting. So, Paul, this may sound a little didactic or a little nitpicky, but I would say there's actually you, – you could break that down a little more. You could say you know, it's one thing to tell the story. It's another thing to come up with a clever headline to move through Twitter that gets people to click on the story. Right, you know, that's most a, that's of the a skill people, that, that people are developing. Right, but it's a different skill than telling a great story. On one hand, you're telling a great story. On the other hand, you're marketing a great story. And as we get into this world of micro content where we have to fit our sound bites into smaller and smaller packages, you know, figuring out what aspect of a one-hour podcast to promote to get people to listen I mean, is a real skill. And I'll tell you, it's a tough one. And there are a few people who really get it. Chris is one of them. Um, you know, there are others uh, – who are really good at it. I, I, to me, it's those people who get just a ton of followers on Twitter. You know, they, they many times, you know, with all due respect and I, and, and uh, Chris is not, not an example of this, but there are some people who have a lot of followers on Twitter and the content they have, the stories they tell actually aren't that good, but they're really good at promoting it. So you wind up clicking through and reading it and it's, you sort of left, Wondering, my gosh, how, why are, why is this so popular? But they understand how to how to put a popular wrapper on it. Right, people have different skills. I mean, I, you're a much better promoter than I am. For example, I couldn't uh, I couldn't do what you do uh, nearly as well as you do it. And, and my guess is that if you were to try to describe why you're so good at promotion, it would be hard for you to do that because it's just 
it's it, it comes naturally to you. I think we're going to see the different the different skill sets will rise around social media. Some people are developing skill sets to be very good at expressing themselves in you know in 140 characters, and other people are great at writing headlines, and other people are great at telling stories, and other people are good with visual tools like like photos and uh, and video. And these skills, it's great to see these new skills developing because I think there will be markets for them. Have you read um, CC and Ann's book, Content Marketing? I love that book. Yeah, I wrote a I wrote a review on my site. Uh, very positive about it. What did you get out of it? Any? Can you give me just, just an overview? Uh, about fifty good ideas. You know, and and that what the book is, Content Rules, is a book about uh, about how to develop interesting, compelling content. And the, and the cool thing about it is they give you lots of tips, lots of ideas for you know how do you. How do you uh, uh, kick yourself in the butt to write an interesting blog post? Have you considered, here's why certain headlines work and certain headlines don't. Here's what you can do with a with a webcast to spice it up and make it more interesting. And the ideas are all solid. This is not a big, uh, a big picture, you know, let's look out at the future future of social media and contemplate our navel type of book. It is a, is a book that is just full of interesting and useful examples for how to make content more compelling. Wow. So kind of like our book. Our book is a practical how-to guide, same, same type of thing. That's a great bridge, Eric. I think, yeah, I mean, the idea is it's, it's not, um, uh, it doesn't tend to pretend to be anything more than a recipe book for content, and I think it does that very well. Got it. Well, I noticed another story that I wanted to talk about, uh, which is actually a sort of a happy, happy, happy title here. Uh, and it says, B2B publishers set to announce revenue boost for 2010. And it talks about uh, Centaur Media, which is, I, th I believe, a UK-based company, uh, Pearson, uh, United Business Media, uh, Trinity Mirror, all these B2B publishers um, basically seeing an uptick in revenue. And um, when I dug a little deeper, uh, I saw that the reason that most of these companies are seeing an uptick in revenue is not because of advertising. Uh, but because of their event businesses, a lot of them have uh, conferences or seminars or workshops or different events that uh, they bring people together at where money is spent, either by a promoter or uh, by people who are looking to do some sort of professional training. And uh, boy, wh who would have thought, right? Well, uh, uh, some of it may be a dead cat bounce. I, I don't know. It's, uh, I mean, they were, they have had two such terrible years. That it's almost hard to imagine things getting worse. You know, the the uh, trade press uh, had the worst was the worst performing of all media categories in 2009, and 2010 was you know everybody sort of flattened out, but it was still a pretty awful year. I've been working. I do work with some publishers. I work with IDG and with uh, uh, IT Business Edge uh, on a fairly regular basis. And what they say is that their custom work. It, it's not just events. The events are doing are doing well, but the custom work is really where it's at. And I think if you want to tie this back to what we were just talking about, what we're seeing is that some of these big technology companies are realizing that they really are not good publishers. That's not their core skill. And so they're turning to the companies that have that skill and 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 outsourcing that, you know, uh, creating quality content. They're outsourcing it to people who, who are good at that. And the publishers are, are seeing some benefit from that. Here's a, a write-up of the earnings release from Pearson. It says, Pearson triples earnings per share. Earnings per share at Pearson have more than tripled. And listen to this. The global education company said, so they're no longer positioning themselves as a trade publisher. 
They're positioning themselves as a global education company. And then it says revenue in the group's education business climbed 9%. Growth was particularly strong in its professional training and international education businesses where sales grew 21% and 19% respectively. I'll tell you, for the last two years, the Washington Post company would have been in deep weeds if it weren't for its its uh, Kaplan Education Division. That has been really their engine of growth. You know, that I think is a going to remain a pretty hot sector uh, through this economic downturn because essentially you got to teach a lot of old dogs new tricks. Uh, yeah, well, training seems to be – training education seems to be um, – uh, uh, seem to be uh, uh, less vulnerable to economic cycles, certainly, than, than a lot of other industries. Um, the, the United Business Media results will be announced tomorrow, so we won't see those. But they announced late last year 10% year-on-year growth um, and a 6% boost in online revenue. Yeah, uh, that's... Um I, it's great to see. You know, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad to see that there is that these companies are changing their models and are are adapting to the new world instead of trying to push everything out in the the old channels that they have for years. So, what do you think? Does this mean we're over the worst? Uh, you know, I think the print publishing industry is just is dying. It's continuing to you know it's it's on a long slow road into oblivion now. Uh, but that's okay because you know we. I think, People have accepted that. I think that this we are entering into a period of, um, of of perhaps renewed growth for professional content companies because simply being in social media is no longer enough anymore. You know, everybody's in social media. You need to be in there doing something interesting, and that's where it really gets tough. But, you know, as these guys get more and more active with uh, professional development services, they're going to start running loggerheads with the trade organizations and the membership societies, you know, like, uh, you know, PRSA and IABC. You know, they also do these events, too. Now they're going to be up against the publishers. Uh, Who's going to win? I mean, certainly the publishers have an advantage in that they are motivated strictly by profit. And if you look at a membership society or a trade organization, they are hamstrung by internal politics, which aren't always uh, beholden to profits. They're beholden to individual agendas inside the organization. And the fact is it's all about specialization these days, right? What's everyone saying? All the management consultants say focus on what you do well and, and outsource that which you don't. If you're not good at developing content, then then why waste a lot of time and money uh, trying to get good at it if, if you're never going to be that good at it? Yeah, I would be surprised if, if PRSA wasn't able to really hang on because they've got a pretty sophisticated professional training organization. I mean, I, full disclosure, I do a lot of trainings for them. We're going to be doing this B2B social media boot camp in uh, Boston later this week. Uh, but, you know, having a firsthand uh, experience of, of how they do business – I think they'll probably make out just fine, despite the competition from the trade publishers. I certainly hope they do. It's a good organization. So, with that, we are going to uh, uh, we'll wrap up this B two B social media podcast number four. Uh, this is Paul Gillen in uh, Boston, and Eric Schwartzman in Los Angeles. And do uh, check out our uh, book, the uh, Social Marketing to the Business Customer, our Facebook page. We keep it constantly updated with new links and uh, new articles that we've, we've posted, uh, reviews, and uh, just goings on in B2B social media, which is something we're both following very closely these days.
And you can get that at b2bsocialmediabook.com. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.